toyed. <laughs> oh, hello. Welcome to Time at the Bar. It's us again. It is. It is. It is, in fact. It is. It, it is us. us. <laughs> and um, guess who's back? Back again. Largo's back. <laughs> It'll never end. <laughs> Honestly, there's too much lager in this world and it all tastes great. Oh, actually, is that a lie? Maybe I'm yeah, lying. that's a lie. That was a filthy, filthy lie from me just then. But, but the ones we've got all taste, taste amazing. Uh, so today we are... Uh, we've taken a step aside from the lager mega episode that we did. Um, and we're doing the mega, just... mega white thing. The mega, mega white thing. And we're just <laughs> doing Oktoberfest beers today. So we're going to drink a couple we of are. the fest beers that we could get our hands on. And we're going to give you a little bit of uh, history and stats and facts. And uh, we'll discuss the flavour of these delightful beverages. So... I'm going to kick us off this week. Can you believe it? You're actually going to get an opportunity to drink some beer. I'm just not going to say much. I'm going to yeah, sit back and enjoy You a sit back and enjoy your beer. A few um, delicious non-adulterated non, non shandies. So yes. no lemonade in there. No, we wouldn't dare. Not with these lovely ones. Mm. Um, mm. So I'm going to give you a few stats about the festival that is Oktoberfest. Um, so to begin with, it is the largest folk festival in the world. An average of 7.5 million litres of beer is consumed in the two-week festival every year. Mm, that's, a, that's a tidy sum, isn't it? 7.5 million litres. I should have worked out how many pints that is. It's got to be over 15 million pints of, of beer. Is it? Well, a pint is 568 uh, mil. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So that's... Oh, God. That's too much beer in half two a, weeks. You know, just in over two half two weeks. I mean, this episode's coming out after the Oktoberfest would have been happening. But, yes. yeah, two weeks. My God. Uh, and there's over six million visitors to the festival as well every mm. year. Um, and 70% of those are from Bavaria. Just Bavaria. 70%? Yeah. I That's thought huge, that it, it would be more, uh, like, tourists. But actually... The majority of it is uh, the majority of people who go are people from Bavaria, and then fifteen percent is for foreign countries, um, which would then suggest that uh, mental maths, quick, quick, fifteen percent, the other fifteen percent is probably other people from other parts of Germany. Yeah. Um, so it's on a forty-two hectare site, which we worked out as four thousand two hundred acres. It, so it, the festival uses 2.7 million kilowatts of electricity, which is roughly 13% of Munich's daily electrical need. So 13% just absorbed just for the festival on a daily basis. Wowzers. That's a huge chunk of power. For a massive city, and you're mm. saying you basically built another city and just gone... Here you go. Here's well, I mean, it's a, it's a, 13% well, of it's our It's a huge site, isn't it? So, you know, and you imagine mm. food, drink, lighting and everything else. I mean, that that number does include the disassembly of all the attractions, the big Ferris wheels and, uh, you know, yeah. all the light, lighting up, lit up things. Oh, my God. I cannot talk today. That's what <laughs> happens when you drink too much. <laughs> Believe it or not. Yeah, I'm hungover. I'm not that bad now. I felt rough this morning. 
Well, you always looked wonderful, so that's... Oh, don't you disgust me. You know, as I said, looked wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't smell wonderful. Oh, I really didn't. That's why I had to have a bath. Anyway, uh, so it, used, it produces 1,000 tonnes of rubbish in two weeks. Ooh. It's pretty disgusting when you think about it. I mean, I'm sure there's ways... they. You'd like to think that they'd be working harder on recycling and things like that, but... Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it says tons. waste, and but I mean, I imagine they have efficient ways to do it. Oh, German oh, processes. Old, yeah, whipping out the old cliches, really. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we didn't do much of it in our lager episode. No, so. I mean, we've, we've tried to be kind to everybody so far. <laughs> Everyone gets their turn, though. And uh, the final stat I've got is they have one thousand eight hundred toilet slash urinals. I imagine there are more urinals because you know. The world is geared. The world of beer is geared towards men, isn't it? So, uh, yeah, yes. I mean, well, yes, that is true. I mean, it shouldn't be, but also, I guess it's so much quicker business to be done. Yes, I assume that some of those uh, the seven million liters is uh, it's going to come out pretty quick after a while. Yeah, yeah. So you once you've broken the seal, once you've broken that seal, but then you think about all the bratwurst and the pretzels. Again. You're going to need a toilet too. Yeah, yeah, it'd be a bit of a shitter if you didn't, eh? Oh, disgusting. Anyway, those are my uh, tasty little facts. Tasty, tasty little facts. So, obviously, that's a little fact-centric kick-off for us. Yeah. But uh, on the other side of the, uh, the experience, we are starting off with a mm. one of our Oktoberfest beers. We're having the Hackershaw Oktoberfest Martzen beer. Now... Bit of debate. I think we mentioned it in the lager episode, but sort of the history of the Oktoberfest style beer. Um, we'll get on to a bit of the a brief, brief snapshot of the history in a bit. I don't want to, you know, retread too much of the same ground. We've done yeah, already. we're we're going to focus a bit more on the beers this time yep. and less on the history because we feel like we covered it pretty extensively. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, this is a lovely example of a Martin style beer. So nice and toasty, just like a little sort of nutty toasty sort of finish to it. Um, lovely light amber hue uh, with a little sort of orangey red sort of centre to it. Um, and to, to me, it's like the classic. Well, first of all, the classics are like Martin style beer. Um, Hackershaw's is a great example of the Martin Fest beer. Now, I know there's lots of people talking about that's not what's sold at the Oktoberfest. And I think, as we said before, turn the 1990s, like pretty much everything turned to gold in the Oktoberfest itself. So whether or not we're getting an exported version that is not what you see at the fest, I don't really care because it's it's nice and uh to me it's a huge chunk of the history of the of the of the Oktoberfest and the style that was spawned out of that as well. So yeah, lovely example here from Hackershaw. I'll give a little overview of those the sort of six breweries that are included in the Oktoberfest in a bit. By the way, if you can hear the any banging and scraping sounds, it's not us and it's not our guts. It's, <laughs> no, it's not. It's uh, we're, uh, I think we're having our hats. The house is being scrubbed down and debarnacled. Yes, uh, it's, ready uh, for its uh, sea, you know to be seafaring again. <laughs> yes, there's something wrong with the roof, so they're uh, <laughs> repairing away. Uh, but that means you might hear some sinister scraping sounds. <laughs> But honestly... It's not the sharpening of knives. No. Or or someone desperately trying to claw their way out of our sex dungeon. 
because we have one of those. That's not what I was expecting. No. <laughs> you were surprised. You're thinking about the cupboard of doom, aren't you? The cupboard of doom is not a sex dungeon. Although I'm sure you get erotically charged when you look at how much beer we have in there. Well, <laughs> possibly absolutely. No gentleman couldn't say. Anyway, uh, so some history then, please. Come on, man. OK, well, we've chosen the Martin to kick off with because of its sort of historical relevance to the Oktoberfest. But actually, to go back before the Martin came along, you had... So if your classic brown beers, and that was you know, that was the beer that would have been drunk at the first Oktoberfest, and probably for the first like sixty odd years. So starting off eighteen ten, we've got the first Munich Oktoberfest. So now we obviously did this in um, our lager episode. Yeah. So if you haven't listened to that yet, go and listen to it. We're not on. repeating ourselves. <laughs> no, we're not going to go over too much the same ground, but basically it was a. It was set up by uh, King Maximilian I. So it was set up by the Bavarian King Maximilian um, for the wedding of his son. Um, and his son's name was Prince Ludwig I. Ludwig I. Prince Ludwig I. Uh, and so yeah, it was basically an event to celebrate the, um, the marriage of Prince Ludwig and Princess Therese Saxon Hildburghausen, <laughs> uh, which... Which we have already said. We've got down what to a, a mouthful. To a fine, to fine two now. Thank God they um, didn't double barrel it. And I think, as we said before, the festival, you know, has run annually since that date, but has only missed out on you know twenty four occasions or so. I think in you know two hundred and ten years, um, which is you know pretty impressive considering you know we've had some pretty major world wars, um, and you know there's been various other events and situations that put the cap on it so we are sort of doing this episode partially because it rides off the back of our lager but also because guess what covid has uh has put an end to the celebrations this year so this yeah. is our little Oktoberfest. We've been having a little Oktoberfest in our spare room with a <laughs> mattress pushed up against the window and, and a boom and mic in front of a us big boom mic so that's the way that us. everyone should celebrate Oktoberfest yeah you know, so it's very sleazy with a mattress up against the window and just blankets all around us. Yeah. And, you know, you've already alluded to a sex dungeon. So. Yes, well, you know, what is Oktoberfest without some raunch? <laughs> yeah, well... You uh, can't see me right now, but I'm wearing a dirndl. That's true. Do you know how many days the, uh, the Oktoberfest lasts for? Well, I believe, darling, it lasts two weeks. Two weeks is the correct answer. Do you know how long the original festival lasted for? Uh, well, it was a wedding, so a day... It was two days. It was a two-day event. Um, two days? Banging. So yeah. the bride and groom, they get married, they go off to a tent to shag, everyone else gets pissed, and then the next they, yeah. day everyone celebrates the was shag. It still, was it still tradition to, you know, for, for the elders to watch, you know, to make sure God that the knows. marriage had been consummated? I don't know whether that was... Uh, it's, all a bit, it's all a bit kinky, isn't it? It is all a bit kinky. Um, no wonder they wear such <laughs> extravagant clothing. So a large number of sort of nobility and upper echelons of the sort of local society were um, were in attendance at the event and they were the only people invited. Obviously it's now the people's, you know, it's a folk festival um, but historically it obviously wasn't started out as a big celebration as marriage and it was free beer. Free beer? Free beer. Bitchin'. <laughs> free beer. Can I go? <laughs> free food. Um, so it was, a, it was, you know, it was, it was just a, a big piss up with lots of delicious things for free, um, which obviously you couldn't continue to do. No. Especially not when it's, you know, 
goes past two days and becomes two weeks. Yes. But um, <clears throat> be a hell of a lot of beer to give away. Yes, exactly. So the, on top of that, though, there was um, it was a series of events. There was horse racing. There was like strongman competitions, um, and this was already like the first the first event. But it went on to be um, sort of more like that. There was like a whole series of different interesting things happened and unfolded. You know, before it became fairgrounds and big tents with big glasses of big booze. Uh, it was <laughs> and big boobs. And bit yes, well yeah, <laughs> the old Durndal, the the accentuator of. Uh, God's gift to... Finest racks. <laughs> yeah. So then, you know, you had all these different events and you had the fun fair start to creep in um, and fairground attractions. And and then one of the sort of more interesting things that they had was um, a flea circus. A flea circus. A flea circus. <laughs> I thought that was the stuff of legends. No. So you'd be watching... You know, live fleas do lots of acrobatic... Oh, yeah, because you can see them, can't you? Well, you'd have to use a magnifying glass to actually, you know, see them doing these tricks. <laughs> so it's just a group of people standing around a table. The magnify yeah, it looks like, so like the, the conventional Sherlock Holmes, you know, lookalikes. <laughs> All just go, whoa. <laughs> so, yeah, but um, again, it started out with... Uh, more of a hodgepodge kind of setup. The local innkeepers were, first of all, just storeholders and they would sell the beer that they chose to sell. Um, and that obviously became more and more regimented as it went along to the point where you end up with the very specific six breweries that are they're the only ones that are allowed to have beer at the festival. Yes. Um, and they're the only ones that can call their beer Oktoberfest. Beers. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and, you know, there's lots of wrangle over that, which is interesting because pretty much get away with it if you do it outside of Germany. Yeah. Um, but obviously, you know, Germans would you know, never accept them as October. In fact, interestingly enough, the person, the, the sort of company that probably makes the most um, Oktoberfest beer in the entire world is Sam Adams, so the Boston Brewing Company. How funny. Um, so, yeah, they've got the claims to be the largest brewer of Oktoberfest <laughs> style beer in, in the world. Um, but, yeah, obviously that's not going to be accepted <laughs> by Germany. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, apart from war and cholera and a few other sort of epidemics and lots of strange, funny, fun moments like those, you know, that is regularly run for, you know, 210 years. And yeah. we're really saying that it's only missed out on those sort of 24 occasions. Yeah. Uh, and this being one of them. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about the the tents. Oh, the tents. It's a very intense subject. Oh, but I think we should get another beer before I do that. Oh yeah, you're right. I mean, my glass is nearly empty. Yeah. We can't be having this. We're going this. for the record. We're going for right. we're going for five pints. Oh, you know what I was going to do for this episode? Go on. I was going to learn some of the drinking songs that people sing at the Oktoberfest. You could still do that and tag uh, them on the end. I'll find some online and I'll share the videos so that everyone can get in the mood and learn the tunes and sing the songs. That's just lovely. So moving swiftly on to beer number two. Beer number two. So it, this is the Spartan mm -hmm. Oktoberfest beer. Um, in instantly looking at it, it is straw coloured. In comparison to the Martzen, this one is night and day. It's, uh, it's an export strength Hellas. It's an export strength Hellas. On the nose, I'd say it's just got a bit more zestiness to it this one i feel like it's um yeah got a bit of like a citrus kind of 
aroma mm. yeah, that the other one that. didn't have. The other one was a lot more um, sort of bready, like the malt was really coming to- through. Yeah, toasty. Toast- I mean, this to me yeah. is very this- white doughy. Yes, still. this one's like white dough rather than toasty, like yeah. you were saying. Well, it's very easy drinking. It's got a lovely sweetness Ooh. in the mouthfeel as well. Yeah, that one is sweeter. I feel like, yeah, the other one's a bit drier, isn't it? The um, Hackershaw. Yeah, the Hackershaw. Yeah, it, well, I mean, I think it's just more of um, I think it's probably got more bitterness to it. Yeah. But that might also be part, partially sort of malt-driven as well. Very nice indeed. Yes, lovely drop. It is quite different to the other one. So mm-hmm. why is this one different? Because so, this is not a Martzen now. No, no, no. We are now talking about the the, the golden fest beer. The golden age of fest beer. Yeah, and I, I think obviously most of them have moved in that direction. There's a claim that this that this beer is still brewed to the the way in which it first was when it was released into the market, but I, I can't really see that being truly the case. Because obviously it was Anton <clears throat> Dreher who was the father of, or one of the grandfathers of the pale malt process in of like bringing that into germany who was at spartan wasn't he so it's gabriel sadelmeyer sadelmeyer oh, i got it the wrong way the around two, the two the two go hand in hand uh anton dreher was at the klein schweig schweighat brewery ah. in austria um, you see there i was thinking i'd learned so much from that last lager <laughs> episode Clearly yeah but the two go listening. hand in hand you know we talked about them a lot as you know sort of like uh, yeah. they both released like, the vienna and the you know, Martin style came out at the same time. They were both, you know, working on that. But actually, the the first Martin beer to be released into the festival was not by Spaten. Wasn't it? No, I, we said it in our previous episode that it is because theoretically that is true. But actually, it was Francis Carner. Ah, yes, because we had the whole uh, family feud, yeah, family so, drama thing, didn't we? So he was bought out. So Joseph. Sadelmeyer was originally bought out of Spaten by his brother, Gabriel Sadelmeyer, the second. Um, and so Joseph went and set up his own brewery, uh, which also ha- he was you know, phenomenally successful with, and that was Francis Carner, Leist Brewery. But then a number of years later, in fact, I think it was in the early 1900s, 1922, something like that, the companies merged and Francis Carner was bought out by was fully bought out by um, Spaten. So there's like this weird, you know, like, there's a weird divergence of the two companies. The introduction at the, I think it was the 1870, 1872, was it, I think? The, I think that's what, yeah, 1872 sounds right to me. That the Martin sort of Vienna style was released to the Oktoberfest. Now, the little story that goes with it, which I think is quite nice, is that it was a late, really hot summer. Um, and so it basically the for some reason the Oktoberfest was um, an even thirstier event than normal and they were oh. getting really low on their classic brown Oktoberfest beer obviously it was oh. never called the Oktoberfest beer but you know that that fest beer um, and so one innkeeper was running so low that he thought he was going to run out of beer altogether and communicated with uh, I think he communicated with um, Gabriel Seidelmeyer at Spaten, and he actually sent them his brother's way um, and said, you know, like, maybe go and talk to him, because pretty much all their beer was probably at the festival as it is anyway. Uh, and so Joseph um, provided that first sort of Vienna Oktoberfest beer, uh, Vienna Martin style beer, to the Oktoberfest, and it went on to be a roaring success. 
and that was the beginning. Now, I say the beginning because it doesn't just change overnight, because even up until the early 1900s, there's a lot of Munich locals that were still like, we are a dark beer, mm. <laughs> a dark beer place, you know, we will continue to fight the fight the dark fight. Um, but, yeah, that, um, that all changed, and but very slowly. So continuing on in the sporadic nature of this, you know, these more conversational episodes where we're just definitely having a few just delicious <laughs> shandies. <laughs> I've got a few bits and bobs that I want to tell you. Mm. Hit me with it. So first of all, I'm going to talk about, as I said before, the tents at the Oktoberfest. Now, ah, yes. There is quite a few of them, but I'm just going to highlight six that represent the different breweries. Okay. And I'm going to talk about the breweries a little bit. So we'll kick off by, t- I'll tell you first of all, that the Paulana Fest Tent is the biggest of all of them. Oh, right. It seats 8,450 people inside. 8,450 people inside. Oh, you know, because honestly, everyone's always like, oh, you've got to go to October 1st, you have to experience it once in your life. I cannot think of anything worse. <laughs> like, just that volume of people getting Drunk. It doesn't seem like um, your dream to me. Oh, God, no, I think... So I'm that's that's the inside of the tent. It has an adjacent little outdoor beer garden, oh, which seats 2,450 <laughs> people. So there's 10,000 people just So that's at the largest. The you're you're close to 11,000 people just at that tent. Christ alive. Yeah, that so that's, that's number one. Um, Spartan is up next, in at number two, with 6,000 people inside, oh, and... Christ. 4,000 outside in the outdoor beer garden. Right. So now this is actually also, whilst we're drinking Spartan, to highlight, this is the oldest of the tents. So this is the oh. one that's gone, just dates back the longest. And it's not just called the Spartan tent because of its sort of history. It's got a different name. I think it relates to the, the innkeeper who oh. first had the, the stall. Number three is the Hofbrau. Um... So that's 6,898 people inside, 3,022 outside, totaling 9,920. I mean, to me, this is just too many people. Like, Yeah, it's a lot of people, isn't it? How do you get... How did the servers serve the beer? Because I know that you see these images of, you know, the, the women carrying, like, armfuls of uh, mass... Mass crook, yeah. Crook. But... Like that's that's how it's done. You're just carrying, you know. P- hopefully, we'll get onto this in a little bit. You know, as many as six in each hand. You just go around slamming down. Somebody's just pouring them, throwing them down. Have you ever seen the videos? It's just like sliding, sliding the beer. And it doesn't matter the, if some gets spilled. It's <laughs> like no. I mean, that's why they're oversized. You know, traditionally in Germany, you drink out of an oversized Stein or Maas, and you know. It gives space for the head of the beer. And also, if you've got a head of the beer, it protects the beer from flying out all over the place. Um, so, yeah. Number four is the Hacker Tent. 6,950 indoors. 2,400 outdoors. So, that's a total of 9,300. Oh, God. Chonky. <laughs> um, number five, Augustina, which is the oldest brewery out of the represented ah, by yeah, how much? the oldest brewery and the only independent i think oh so because the other ones have been more recently bought by larger yeah they've been acquired by larger yeah. 
larger breweries or they're all part of you know one con- sort of conglomerate sort of brewery but yeah so they're the oldest and i'll get on to that in a bit i'll tell you all okay, that okay lovely um, but uh, yeah oldest brewery represented um 8,500 altogether, so 6,000 indoors, 2,500 out. Uh, and in joint, well, joint in with them is Lovenbrau, uh, or Lovenbroy, um, which is 5,700 indoors and 2,800 outside, which is the same volume, 8,500. So that's just six of the, the tents. There's a lot more, and they represent the breweries a few times over, um, but those are their main tents. So next thing I want to tell you all about is those breweries. So we start off with the Hofbräu, um, which, as you might remember from before, is the Hofbräu House. Yes. Um, that is the, the sort of the people's. Yeah. Well, so the Hofbräu. So it's the it's the people's brew house, effectively. But that doesn't mean they get a brew there. No. Um, <laughs> uh, interesting thing about the Hofbräu, which I'll be mentioning in a minute in relation to another brewery, is that uh, they did end up taking over somebody else's patch as the as the royal beer supplier. Oh. So, yeah, founded in 1589. It is state-owned, so you could say it is one of the other independents, but to be state-owned I don't think truly is, um, because there will be lots of people having lots of parts of the slice of that pie. Um, and so, yeah, it was also founded by Duke Wilhelm V, who's grandson of Duke Wilhelm IV, who signed the law which we now call the Reinheitsgebot, ah, um, yes. which I'll get on to in a second as well. Uh, his, also, his son, Maximilian I, um, also did not like the brown beer that they produced, and uh, as you know, they were set up as a Munich brown beer producer, which ah. became like the Dunkel. Um, so he switched to, to wheat beer brewing when he took over from his, from his father, and banned everybody else from pr- producing wheat beers. So they, how could he ban other people from producing wheat beers? Well, he's he's royalty. He's the he's the king of Bavaria. He can say no one else is allowed to do it. It's it's special special dispensation to the court of the king. Royal brat alert. Um, given... Yeah. So not most of them didn't abuse their power like that. But for a long time, it was wheat was wheat and wheat beers mm. were strictly controlled by the um, the royalty in Bavaria. So next up is Hackershaw, originally Hacker, founded 99 years before that document that we were talking about, the Reinheitsgebot, which wasn't named that till you know early 1900s. But well, actually the document was called Land Ordinance of Upper and Lower Bavaria, not quite uh, as catchy as yeah. Reinheitsgebot. Uh, it's not a single long word either. Uh, well, um, you know, I've anglicised. Oh, I, I don't think they wrote that down in English. No. Um, <laughs> but, so yeah, they were founded in 1417? 1417? Yeah, that's 1417. Oh my goodness, I didn't realise they were that old. Oh, yeah, yeah, well, ha- well yeah, and this is where it all gets questionable, you know, you can you could see this with breweries and anybody that wants to advertise that they are, you know, this old and that they're obviously the best because of it, um, is that it means that there was a brewery on the site or you know, there was an inn or whatever, so, you know, you don't necessarily get all the facts of that. But they claim that it's 1417 for Hacker. Um, so they merged in 1972 with Palana. So on to Palana, founded in 1634 by the Minim Friars. So this was an old monastic brewery. For a prolonged period of time, they, well, I think they still are now, to this day, they're, they're the sixth best-selling beers in Germany. It's, you know, pretty high up when you think about a lot of the other beers that are around in the, in the, in the market. So yeah, both of those companies then were were 
sort of uh, acquired into into one, which is Brow Holding International. Fascinating stuff, I know. But what's interesting about that is that Heineken own 49.9% of that company. Oh. So they are not, by 0.1%, they are not the overall domineering factor, but Heineken own 49.9% of that. Augustina. 1328, you might notice there's no particular order here. It's all <laughs> flying by the seat of your pants stuff. Um, they are independent, and they're the oldest, to say, 1328. So really going back. Augustina, you might gather from the name, is, again, an old monastic uh, setup. So they were the Augustinians. The monastery exists from 1294, and there may well have been brewing from earlier than, than 1328, but that is the first documented um, knowledge of the brewing going on there and uh, the site in which they are based was called the well it was called the Oakfield the the Haberfelt um, which I just think is nice you know, just a lovely little sort of rustic name that goes with it <laughs> um, and they did supply uh, beer to the Bavarian royalty up until 1589 when the Hofbräuhaus obviously kicked them off that that top spot as it were so I want to just quickly talk about Prince Ludpold, who is current sort of incumbent uh, royalty in Bavaria. Oh, yes. And if you've ever seen things like, you know, Michael Jackson's uh, Beer Hunter, anything like that, you, you, get to, you get to meet and see this charming man called Prince Ludpold. Um, and so he owns uh, Kaltenberg Castle, which is his ancestral home. That's always classic when you've got a castle. That you, yeah, I just sit away in my lovely castle up in the, in the mountains. Um, but Kaltenberg, uh, first of all, as a brand of beer, but they ha he, so he's a brewer. Oh, that's Royalty used to not just be decorative. Royal brewer. <laughs> he was also he he was the brewer, and you know there's a, a great heritage behind him because obviously, if you go back, his I think his great great grandfather is the man whose wedding is being celebrated at oh, Oktoberfest. so and he's direct descendant. Going right the way back, his great 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 whatever it is, grandfather is the man who effectively created the Reinheitsgebot document in its first place, you know, that, that initial document as part of the land ordinance of Upper and Lower Bavaria, nice, in 1516. Um, so, you know, there's a huge long line of that family going all the way down. But Prince Leutpold couldn't even get his beer, even with his royal ancestry, to be at the Oktoberfest. That's ridiculous. So he obviously lobbied and pushed and pushed, and they said, no, there's, these are the rules, these are the rules in place. You so cannot have your beer at the Oktoberfest. It's not made inside of the boundaries of Munich. So why is it that it has to be in Munich? Uh, I mean, it will have been a protective document initially, probably. Um, oh, they're obsessed with their bloody protective, <laughs> protective documents. I couldn't they? possibly tell you why other than that somebody stipulated that at some point and it's just stuck and mm. they're you know fastidious about not relenting on that because there are several other small breweries that also are in Munich and have some of them are quite just quite you know quite old as well and established but they're not allowed in so it's just the six you just have the six and that's it you know if you don't like it sling it um so that's that but yeah um and I was talking about earlier just to flip back a little bit you know the 1872 that hot late summer that I was talking about where you know they had all those problems and Joseph Sadelmeyer swept in and saved the day but the reason I chose to say that is because I want to talk about Spaten next and I wanted to link the Francis Kana back to that so it was Francis Kana that you know provided that beer um, and so they as two companies merged in early 1900s I said 1922 so they merged with a company called Leuvenbroi in 1997 
And Love and Roy were founded in the 1860s, um, and at one point they produced a quarter of the beer output in Munich. They were the biggest Munich brewery, and obviously things didn't quite work out for them in the end. Um, and I think they were pretty demoralised by uh, by the Second World War and the attempt to try and export a lot of their beer, which sort of also slightly backfired because they allowed people to contract brewer elsewhere, which sort of left a gaping hole in their in their market. But yeah, so it, but in 2003, all of those combined breweries, Francis Carner, Spaten and Leuvenbroi, were sold to Interbrew, uh. that a year later became InBev, and yeah. is now AB, AB InBev. Um, so sadly, you know, you've got a huge, you know, sector of that fest is tied up in sort of InBev, in InBev's pocket, uh, AB InBev, and then you've also got a chunk that's probably, you know, 49.9% owned, you know, two, two brewers, 49.9% owned by Heineken, hmm. leaving so your Hofbräu, which is owned by the, the state, and Augustina is the only sort of true independent really left. So realistically, a lot of the money that goes into this festival, a lot of the tourism that goes into this festival, not much of it's feeding back. Considering it's a folk festival, you would expect it to be more beneficial to the community at large. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I don't really know where the money goes. I mm, wouldn't even want to guess. I'm not that type of journalist. <laughs> I'm not any type of journalist, actually. Um, don't know why I said that. <laughs> some form of journalist. Podcast is sort of arguably journalism. So just um, a quick rewind on a few other things. So pale since 1990. So it's all gone blonde in that period of time. Oh, well, who hasn't? Blonde on blonde. Um, but the ABV we sort of think of as being you know, strictly sort of you know, a, a boundary of like 5.8 to 6.3, as I said earlier. Um, so it's not really wiggled around too much. But actually, it did. It changed and deviated quite a lot. I mean, initially, that brown beer would have not been in those ABV brackets. We don't really know what they would have been necessarily. But also, apparently, that, that Vienna Martin star beer was probably quite a bit stronger than anything in that bracket of 5.8 to 6.3. Um, again, I, there's no real proof for that, but there's a lot of conversation about it being more like a Maybach, so a strong golden lager instead. Um, but in the sort of mid mid 20th century that's when they actually achieved the lowest abv ever in the Oktoberfest beers and so it's obviously crept back up so you know we talk about these styles sort of changing and deviating but uh, again people want a little bit more of a special thing so they don't really want just like to go and sink a load of hellas they want that special export style mm. festy hellas <laughs> so yeah that's where it got to and we talked about the way in which they were carried to the tables. You know, I think this is really interesting to me. Um, and I remember this bit of news sort of, you know, coming out. But first of all, you know, the mass Krug, as we said, is, is a litre. It's a litre measurement. Yeah. And so the record for carrying them was broken in 2016. Yes. Uh, the previous record in 2014 was carrying 25 mass Krugs. In one go. In one go. But the man who broke the record carried 27 he actually initially had 29, I think, but he spilled. And, two of you know, them two fell off, yeah. yeah. Um, but that is 62 kilograms. God. I, that's what I was thinking, because I was like... I was glad, you know, the glass is heavy enough, is it? Yeah. It's 62 kilograms. Um, so he carried that through his two hands, um, which, for, for those of us that are not working in sort of kilos, then 137 pounds. Yeah. Um, and he carried that 131 feet. And for those of us that are not working in feet, 
uh, not strange and you know British in their way, uh, then that's roughly about 40 meters. So. Oh. Quite a distance, and his, he says his technique, although debated by the previous, uh, you know, champion, who says, of course, he says he's like, how dare you? It is, it is not. No, no, it's illegal what it's he's cheating. done, or you know, like whatever. He's, you know, he doesn't believe it's correct, but he holds six crooks in each hand. Okay. And then uh, he stacks how? everything else on top. Three, four, five. Well, you take it through the, probably centrally through the hands like oh, that. Oh, yeah, if you, you grab all the through. handles together. I and was then you probably like just twist your wrists in, which no one can see this because this looks quite funny. No, but, um, yeah, maybe we should take photos of ourselves trying to Well, we've lift. said we should probably get onto that, you know, at some point. The video, yeah, video podcasting. So, uh, oh, Cheers. cheers. The next one is uh, Paulana Oktoberfest. So, so far, yeah, this is our third of the official Oktoberfest beers. And you'll see what I'm talking about in a few minutes. Um, Colour-wise, pretty much identical to the yeah, Spartan, it's, uh, isn't it? probably That's slightly it. more golden, a bit yeah. more straw golden. That one was really did come across as quite pale. Also, interestingly, as it warmed up, I found more sort of marzipan sort of notes in the, yeah, the flavour, which... Go to that change. I mean, we've we had these pretty cold, didn't we? But now we've uh, we've had them out for two days. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> two days has taken us to record this very conversational episode. <laughs> no, this uh, this is more of the temperature I like. My yeah, I think that's about. But that's about spot I think on. Actually, that the first one was too cold. Yeah, first was too cold. So, so I mean, you didn't. We probably didn't really get a fair appreciation of the first and second no. so much. But, okay, um, smell wise, I mean that is uh, that's definitely sits right. Between the other two, the Spartan yeah, there's more, and the Hacker, this there's more, Paulana... There's more spice than the Spartan, more akin to the, the Hacker. Yeah. So that's the the hop character is coming through a bit more there. Interestingly, I know you said that the hop character came through more on the Spartan, but obviously that was the first pale one we'd had. Yeah. And at the cooler temperature, it probably did amplify it probably that did. element Yeah, so more. it may have been a trick of the... No, but I think I think that still is, you know, and I I think about the Spartan particularly as it used to be, I and mean, it seems to change, you know, every year, yeah. you know, get slowly slowly less and less uh, character to it. Not, you know, it's not that it's bad, but it's not in the same you know bracket as some of the others. But it seems, which is which is real shame, considering to my mind that is like the these are the guys that change so much of the the lager world as it is, and also you know particularly Munich sort of brewing scene, and um, you sort of feel like they're sort of like the big sort of granddaddy in a way and they've they've sort of been you know left left to sort of rot to some degree but yeah i feel like the reputation of spartan in comparison to the others is not well, spartan love and bros we were talking about they yeah. their reputation has gone the direction that is probably expected because of the company that they're aligned yeah to. so it's um not re- enormously surprising. But. And I think it's a shame, isn't it, really? Because, I mean, snobbery in the kind of crafty side of the industry, or at the very least, in serious beer drinkers. Yeah. I, I mean, total appreciation for the fact that the origins of craft, the craft industry comes from trying to support the small independents. Yeah. But, I mean, are we not seeing it more and more with the big boys that are, they, the bigger they get, someone's going to be sniffing around them looking to invest. Yeah, well, I mean, it's all about it's, money-making it's, after a while. It's inevitable, and you you know, you know see it in this, the fact that we're talking about, you know, realistic, there's only one true independent out of those mm. six Oktoberfest breweries and, and beers, um, which, you know, it really shouldn't be the case. But that that is a way that, 
these markets work and it's a you know a sad sad indictment of a sort of like capitalist modern world um, yeah but yeah i mean you can only you know do what you do and you know i think we all get excited even if some of them are you know i, I think probably if we're being honest the beers that we would go for are still your sort of uh, Hackershaws, your Parlaners, maybe yeah. because they are more readily available here, but having also tried the Lovenbroy and the Spat, to me they just don't have the same depth of quality and sort of genuine flavour that, say, those others do. And like the Augustina, you know, those those yeah, are, they they're, on, they're on a different level, you know, to some degree. And like yeah. the Hofbräu is still, still good, but... It, it's the homogenisation yeah. that comes with being bought in, mm. but someone buying in like a big brand buying into you is they want consistency to make that product yeah. uh, like appealing to all of their markets so that's you know it's thoroughly understandable yeah you know, it's, you know you want something to be reliable and that's why we're saying that in our lager episode that's where why lager's got to be sort of the beer that everybody drinks the world over you know 95 percent of what is drunk in the world yeah. is it's is, pale lager, pale lager. Yeah. And it's because it's, you know, homogenised and consistent and bland and boring and pretty easy going. Just something you can slip down. It's completely the opposite to what just, you know, all these different varieties of lager are. Yeah. But yeah, when we're drinking the Oktoberfest, you can see that they've paired that beer back to be more and more smashable, sessionable, sinkable. I think I've said all of these different <laughs> able words before, but... You know, it got to a point where it is still that volume consumed, even at something like that. You know, a you know a, a folk festival, you're still saying just drink all of this, just drink loads, which you know, we get, we understand. But personally, out of all those beers, having not really tried Augustina in a, you know a long time, I'd love to have that. It'd be between that and Hackershaw for me because I like. I like But them. then, as I say, I don't know if that's exactly the same at the festival. I've, no. I've never true. yet been. I've chosen not to go for various I won't different be reasons over the years. Um, <laughs> no, no, I'm saying over the years I've, I've chosen not to. I'd rather go to, like, Anna Fest, which is, a, you know, a lovely small festival. And interestingly, the last... You'd Bamberg, really, wouldn't you? Well, yeah, it's a, it's a year-round beer festival in a way. But the, <laughs> the last beer that we're going to have, um, so you can see the last two have come together in a real clump. We're sort of, like, rounding out our conversation now. But it's not an Oktoberfest beer. Mm. Uh, I think it used to get branded as an Oktoberfest beer when it was exported around the world. Um, but it's not legally allowed to define itself as, um, is Eyinger. And so Eyinger, in sort of direct um, reply to the Oktoberfest, host a series of different events or put on a series of different events all around the sort of peripheries of Munich little festivals and pop-up, you know, beer events as their sort of, like, answer to the Oktoberfest. So we're going to finish with the Eyinger Fest Martzen, uh, which to me, great. That is, obviously, we're going right back full circle to the sort of Hackershaw Martzen and we're going, this is, this is the old fest, the fest beer of old. So really, what are we thinking of this beer in comparison to the other two that we've tried? Well, we're down to the dregs. Let's, uh, yeah, we've, uh, we've been chatting. We'll plough through this one. Um, I mean, t to me, I, I, I still like the Polana, but it's it's very honey sweet yeah. and you know not seriously sweet but honey sweet yeah, not cloying and grainy yeah but i think also it's got like a very floral after t you know it's got that spiciness in the aroma but it's got a floral sort of aftertaste which you know lots of lagers do i think it's probably characteristic of you know a lot of the lager style beers I keep saying lager style, even though I've also been yeah, saying the whole time, it's not lager it's style. It's not lager style. It's <laughs> um, but that's, you know, just one of those beers. things. Lager beers. Um, so a lot of lagered beers, um, that is 
probably pretty classic of those. Yeah, I think that in comparison to the ones we've had so far, like the the hacker just stands out for me. It always does because it kind of, again, like you said, not being to the festival, don't know what it looks like there, but from the bottle, certainly, you, you've got a bit more richness, that depth of colour as well, and I feel like those ones always appeal to me more. Absolutely there's agreed. There's a bit more richness, like that. there's more complexity. It, it just... I can session that more efficiently than I can session on 100%. this. 100%. I mean, I, I think that's what I was going to go on to say about the sort of more perfumed floral finishes that, to me, that... I think my palate would get grow jaded of that after mm. a, you know a couple of mass krugs of it, and I'd definitely be craving more the five point eight end of the scale with the more toasty, nutty, biscuity sort of finish yeah. compared to the soft, doughy, floral, slight apple bitey sort of you know that that's where we are with the Paulana, which I think is to me I still really like it. I prefer you know to the Spaten, which I'm still very sad to say, but you know Imbev's got that one so. Uh, Trail off, trail off, trail, trail off, off, trail off. <laughs> but, um, um, yeah, I mean, the Spartan, what the Spartan does have for itself is full-on sessionability because it's yeah. it's so, uh, it's a straight line of beer, isn't mm. it? It doesn't offend your palate. And I do find it quite interesting, though, that it has what I would think of as more of a potentially even slightly more rustic um, element in the flavour to it is that it's got that slightly marzipan stollen yeah. bread sort of you know a little bit of sweet powdery sort of sugar flavour you know with that sort of a little bit of raisiny sweetness very doughy slightly almost sourdoughy white bread flavour and then that marzipan sort of almond sort of you know flavour perfume in the mouth as well um, which I find really interesting because that's what I'd expect maybe of a more Sort of rustic lager producer, somebody small, and you know, up in the uh, up in, you know, the sort of Franconian hillside or something. But yeah, um, what I was going to say to you before though is that Hackershaw we say about not having had it at the Oktoberfest, which we haven't, but we have had that on draft several times in yes. the UK. So unless they do a an export version for all the the countries that don't get to see what the the Munich. Uh, Oktoberfest is all about. I don't really believe that can be the case. No, and I and it was always yeah. It's always been the the slightly like uh, yeah the darker colour, more caramel coloured. Yeah, a little caramel sort of you know note to it. And yeah, I, I yeah. Think, so we have you know t to argue ourselves back out of that sort of colder sack of uh, <laughs> information. We're saying well, no, actually we have had it on draft though, so that means yeah. that must be the the one and the same. Yeah, absolutely. Ah, so, so you've, uh, you, uh, uh, well, yeah. let me finish my beer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, look at that colour. Right, cheers again. Prost, we should say it. Prost. Oh, and speaking of, one little last nugget of information. Oh, I love you. a nugget. <laughs> a golden nugget. A golden nugget um, of information. So I said about uh, the Spartan tent being the oldest. Yeah. One little nod to it being uh, the oldest is the fact that it's um, it's the place in which the Lord Mayor of Munich taps the first barrel. Ah, okay. And he gives... I won't say the clarion call, but it's not really... You know, he's not begging people to drink. They're going to do it anyway. Mm. But he shouts, Ozapt is! Which means... It is tapped. It is tapped! So I'm going to you know, shout that randomly from now on. <laughs> in, 
opposed to the untapped obsession of the modern day, it, it was it is tapped. It is tapped. It is indeed tapped, and we it are all ready to drink. Tapped and, up. Uh, absolutely. And the other thing that I've thought of that I've completely forgotten to say that I really wanted to tell you in particular oh, yeah. is that the Augustina tent also, its little quirk is, it's the only one that still serves the beer directly out of the wooden barrels that it was. Oh, I'd, yeah. be, oh, I'd be fascinated to try beer from proper wooden barrels. I know Braybrook do it, don't they? Uh, so they, they do what I think a lot of the German companies call party kegs. Ah, right. But they are, they are great. I mean, it's the same thing that, say, um, the you know, if you get sort of 20-litre Kulsch barrels and things like that, still serve like that. But again, you know, the Kulsch culture and sort of like more ale culture up in the north that we talked about in a lager episode, they still a lot of the time serve directly out of the wood. Yeah. But also the same in Franconia and places like Bamberg. It's still very typical to still find beer served directly uh, from the fass, which is the the barrel, that is the the vessel in which it's all... Uh, so you say they do these party cakes. Do you mean they do them for consumers? Because if we could get one for Christmas, that would be really, really uh, cool. I'd, yes, I mean, you could theoretically get them. But what most of the time it's done is it's like, you know... Uh, brewery side door sales um, yeah. you sort of like yeah you can take one of those but but yeah. actually it's quite traditional in lots of bars to serve yeah. the beer that way yeah and you know there's been a big renaissance of it particularly in cultures that really appreciate that sort of you know particularly Franconian uh, beer culture and you know maybe sort of the more northern like Rhineland Cologne and Dusseldorf sort of culture and they serve the beers on the bar and we used to do it at the beer emporium and used to ring a bell and sort of, you know, that's, that's oh, it. Yeah, the beer was got... on the bar, we'd yeah. serve it, and, you know, you'd hope that everyone drank it all in one night because it's not going to really last next to the next day. No, it's... I think we had one for one of our Oktoberfests. Yeah, I think it had the, was it the Reisdorf Kulsch? Yes. yes. Oh, my so God. It was a lovely drop. That was so good. But, yeah, countries like Italy, you know, there's a there's a big sort of swing towards serving beer that way. And I, th- I, I think it's a great thing. I think lager, again, like people think about it as being highly carbonated, pushed through a really cake tap. Really cold. And it, does, it doesn't have to be. No. But as we're probably seeing with this delicious little drop, so <sighs> you talk me through it because you've had a taste already. Oh, my God. It's just, it's like the hacker on, like, Prozac. It's just, there's so much more Prozac depth. Prozac hacker. Character, it like it, there's caramel. I mean, okay, maybe this isn't going to appeal to you in the same way it appeals to me. But just that instant. Oh yeah, no, that's great. The the smell is toasted brown bread in this one. Yeah. I feel like there's a real uh, like sort uh, of almost know, it's almost meal. like cedared like linseed or, or like ah, rye yes. or something like that there's it's got like, a little yeah there is a seediness to it as well not Ooh. in a dirty sense Ooh, seedy <laughs> seedy beer mm. Mm. yeah that's what I was... so again that's that's oh, got but... that aroma that I was talking about that she said the Spartan has which I like which I think is slight in my mind is slightly more rustic and it's that yeah. ever so slightly sort of like almond pasty sort of just just a touch yeah. of it that goes so nicely with it's that an little almond caramel. croissant in yeah. a glass yes yeah, yeah exactly um, but with no butter with no bu- well there has to be butter in a croissant you fool yeah but there's no butter in this and there's no butter in this no it doesn't smell buttery oh like ah oh, and this is the thing this is where i get a little bit 
uh, annoyed mm. about the fact that they only give the Oktoberfest um, label to certain beers because this is it is a completely different kettle of fish. It's so much richer. There's so much more depth. That to me makes me think I'm tasting something genuine and mm. traditional, and I'm actually getting a taste of the folk element of the yeah, folk yeah. festival. The things that you should be experiencing when you go to something like October. Oh, and I couldn't agree with you more, particularly in the fact that, you know, as you say, you're getting to taste that festival that you you wouldn't if you went to it. Yeah. It is more of the folk festival to taste to us, I guess. Obviously, we, you know, as a the uh, unanointed from uh, not having gone. But to me, that has... I, I like, like the Hacker, and I like a lot of the Oktoberfest beers, but I do find them all uniformly similar, and the yeah. Hacker stands out There's only of that. very subtle changes. I'd say, like, yeah, the Hacker stands out, like you mm. say, from all the other Oktoberfest beers. Obviously, I, we haven't been able to try the other three today. But well, It's not that we haven't been able to. We... You know, chose to keep it pared back because already we've probably rambled on. Love to have talked about, you know, Augustina in particular. That'd have been a great oh, yeah. option. Um, but we just kept it as simple as possible. Um, the ones that we managed to get from our local bottle shop, Corks yeah. of North Street. Yeah, Corks if you're of North in, Street, Bristol. But uh, you know, if you're in Bristol, you may have heard of Corks. Go to Corks of North Street because that's where you get the good beer. And if you haven't, then fair enough. Go to your local bottle shop. Find your local bottle shop. Always going to shout from the rooftops about that. Yeah, I mean it's great to support local businesses, but also to 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 both myself and Maz. You know, I know you'll agree with me. Um, one of the great things about going to a local shop is you can have a conversation, and that's yes. why I go to a shop. I I've never gone to shops to go mindlessly down a series of aisles. Uh, I was about to say blind alleys, uh, <laughs> which is sort of is, but series of aisles or just to order online just so that I don't have to deal with anybody at, you know, like the self-service checkout. No. As as it all is. And it's grand, you know, and a lot of the time, you know, we have to order from, from far, far-flung places and order online, but as much as possible, get yourself down to your local bottle shop. Because and pick up a great conversation. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you're you're really right about that. Yeah. Well, I think we're um, we're rounding up now, so it's probably a slightly more bloated episode than we were going to do. No. Well, hey, and it's do a not underestimate more... how much I take out of these episodes when oh, I, I get to editing. I know. I, I think we'll get to the end, and it will just it'll just be like ten ten minute monologue from me. Yeah. <laughs> you going, that's nice. And I like it. <laughs> Thumbs up. Um, yeah. Next next episode will be less less flaws talking dominant. Uh, and it will and I'm be, looking forward to that. It will be less. Because then I can drink more. <laughs> lagery as well. We, yeah. uh, we appreciate uh, your patience with our lager month. We've basically, by the end of this, we'll have released only episodes about lager. For, yeah. for we've, got, we've got some crackers coming up. So, you know, tune in, pick up. Our podcast, Time at the Bar, wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts and podcast episodes. <laughs> um, and as always, get, get out. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Time at the Bar. If you have any beer recommendations, uh, suggestions for episodes, or you just fancy getting in touch, then please email us at tatbpod at gmail.com. If you use social media, then please follow us on Twitter at Time at the Bar Pod or Instagram at Time at the Bar Pod. Thanks again for listening.